Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, in the last of our shows for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize, we're talking about dying, death and wisdom in an age of denial with Dr. Catherine Mannix and her book, With the End in Mind. Before we start the show, a quick thanks to Hannah McMillan at Midas PR and to everyone at the Welcome Trust for setting up these interviews. Dr. Catherine Mannix has spent her medical career working with people who have incurable advanced illnesses, starting in cancer care and changing career to become a pioneer of the new discipline of palliative medicine. She has worked as a palliative care consultant in teams in hospices, hospitals and in patients' own homes, optimising quality of life even as death is approaching. She is passionate about public education and having qualified as a cognitive behaviour therapist, she started the UK and possibly the world's first CBT clinic exclusively for palliative care patients. And Catherine is also the author of With the End in Mind, Dying, Death and Wisdom in an Age of Denial, which is shortlisted for the 2018 Welcome Book Prize. Catherine, thank you for joining me on Little Atoms. Hello and thank you. So can you describe what With the End in Mind is about for us? It really is a book of stories. It's a book of stories about people who I've looked after in the teams that I've worked with over many, many years. And some of the stories go back to when I was a medical student. It's a book that is designed to help us be more aware of what normal dying is like. So everything that happens in the book is something that really happened sometime in the last 40 years. But I've changed lots of details and I've given some things that happened to some families, to different families, to just try and protect the identities of the individuals involved, because obviously I couldn't go to them for permission. And the intention really is just to have somebody sit beside me, as it were, as they read the story and see what I saw and heard what I heard and view the conversations and the experiences of those patients and their families and the staff who were working with them to replace the lost wisdom and understanding of dying that was so prevalent, you know, 100 years ago, but has become lost as we live longer with medical advances. Yeah, and that's the irony, isn't it? That the more medical technology advances, the more we can live longer with certain conditions. We distance ourselves from death and become less familiar with it. Yeah, it's probably partly a 
deliberate distancing and it's partly simply reflecting uh, better nutrition, better sanitation, better health care so that 100 years ago, a woman's life expectancy at birth would be in her mid to late 50s. Now it's in her mid to late 80s. So there's a whole generation of people who just haven't seen their parents and their siblings dying until they themselves are into retirement age. So there's there's a social and sociological thing about this, as well as the psychological thing of trying not to think about something that we think will be terrible. So that's an effect it has on us when we see people around us die. But what also does this... I guess unwillingness to confront death in the fa- to you know to look death in the face. What effect does that have on us dying? Well, it means we don't prepare. It means that we don't know what to expect, and so in to that extent, the book is to enable people to understand what to expect and what a gentle and relatively comfortable process normal dying can be. But because we don't know what to expect. We fill the gap with stuff that we get from the media and Hollywood and soap operas, where obviously they dramatise dying because normal dying isn't very dramatic, so it doesn't make good drama. And being frightened means we're less likely to think about it and talk about it, which means when we get to a situation where it's important to us because it's happening to somebody we love or it's our own death that we're facing, we've got no resources to draw on to be able to start to plan in a sensible sort of way so in i guess layman's terms what is the role of a palliative care doctor what's a normal day look like oh there are no normal days which is why it's so satisfying so the role of palliative care generally is to offer expertise in symptom management and it could be physical symptoms like pain or breathlessness or bother with your bowels or itch But it also could be psychological and emotional symptoms like sadness or depression or panic or worrying about how you're going to tell your children what's going on. And it was partly for those reasons that I trained as a cognitive therapist. And a palliative care team will also consider not just those physical and emotional aspects of a patient's care, but also the person's uh, social needs. Are they still able to offer parenting maybe in a slightly different form if that's their current role? How do you enable them to, to maintain their roles and their personhood and their place within their particular bit of society? And also the kind of existential spiritual part of being a human, which is something else that I touch on in the book. And for some people, that's being a, m- a member of one of the great faiths. And it's a religious thing. But existential, spiritual personhood is not only defined by religion, it's, it's far broader than that. So in a team offering palliative care, you'd have a, a doctor, a palliative physician, and then you will have expert nurses. And then if you're lucky, you'll have access to support from chaplaincy, pharmacy, social work, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, quite a broad team. Sorry to people who are listening who I've left out because it can be very broad indeed. And each individual person is applying their expertise to try to enable this person and their family to function as well as possible. Now, one of the things about that is we started as a very cancer-focused, very end-of-life-focused specialty. But over the 30 years that I've been in palliative care, something really great has happened, which is that people in medicine have started to realise that palliative care is a resource for symptom management that's applicable 
way beyond cancer and way sooner than the end of life. So there's some good news, which is you're no longer obliged to die simply because you've seen a palliative care team. You know, we could be working with you because you've got newly diagnosed cancer and you're going to need to have your symptoms managed so that you're well enough to have major surgery designed to cure you or a major radiotherapy or chemotherapy intervention with the intention of curing you. And the palliative care team will be working alongside the surgeons or the oncologists to keep you as well as possible so that you can finish your treatment and be cured. I want to talk about a couple of the stories that you talk about in the book and they're they're very early on and during the time when you yourself were still learning from other people but I think are illustrative of of some of the themes in the book and the first one is a lady called that you call in the book Sabine yeah uh, a French lady who's basically she's around 80 years old she's dying she knows she's dying and she's she's afraid and she's particularly afraid that she won't have the courage to deal with it and what happens okay so this was a life-changing moment for me I was very junior in palliative care at the time I'd started training at a hospice Um, so my very experienced consultant took me along with him to talk to this lady now in fact her distress was that existential distress I was talking about before she had been a member of the French resistance and she'd married a British soldier who'd parachuted in to join the resistance and help with radio contact. And both of them had been decorated for valour. And he had died many years before of a heart attack. And he had always been brave. And her fear was that if her courage failed her at the end of her life, if she despaired, then somehow when she died, she wouldn't end up in the right part of the afterlife that she believed in to be reunited with her husband. So this was a desperately terrifying thing for her. So my consultant took me along and he sat down with her and I thought he was going to talk about pain relief. But actually what he did was offer to explain to her what sort of things she should expect during the process of her dying. And I couldn't believe that that was what he was offering to explain to her, but she didn't seem perturbed. And he explained that process of gradually winding down, of becoming more weary, of increasing need for sleep to sustain energy for the shorter periods that she'd be awake, eventually lapsing into being unconscious, and then the automatic breathing changes that take over at the very end of life until eventually there is just a very gentle out-breath that isn't followed by another in-breath. And I sat on a little stool low down watching her face during this conversation and I was astonished at the detail that he was going into and at the transformation in her as she heard and recognised the truth that he was describing and because I'd worked in oncology and because I'd worked with people on wards that looked after people with very serious illnesses I'd seen quite a lot of dying even by this early stage in my career so I recognised that he was describing with enormous skill, a process that I'd seen many, many times, but I'd been so closely looking after each individual patient, I'd never stood back and noticed the pattern. And it is a pattern, and it is predictable, just as the sequence of events in giving birth are predictable. And I suddenly realised that here is something that we can do that is transformative, which is to restore to people as he had restored to her a peace of mind in understanding that dying 
is not terrible. And at the end of the conversation, she just leant forward, she picked up his hand and she kissed it and she just said, thank you. And my mind was completely blown. And I think that's a point that's worth reiterating. So while obviously there is traumatic death, you know, a lot of people die in accidents and unexpectedly, but for the vast majority of people, this is what we will experience. Absolutely. And it doesn't seem to matter what illness it is that's causing us to die. That kind of energy failure, gradual onset of being more weary and gradual lapsing into coma happens whichever of our organs is failing and taking us into death. I think that's another thing that's really worth thinking about, that the process of dying itself doesn't really have symptoms other than gradual loss of consciousness. The symptoms that a person would have as they were dying would be the same symptoms they'd be having of the illness that brought them to die. So if you haven't had a painful illness up to the point of dying, it's unlikely to become painful at that stage. If it hasn't been an illness that's caused you breathlessness previously, you're unlikely to be breathless in the final stages of life. So managing symptoms well during the illness is the best possible preparation for maintaining comfort and keeping those symptoms under control during the process of dying. But dying itself is not something that causes us physical distress. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. and you're listening to Little Atoms, a podcast about ideas and culture. 
The second example I want to talk about is a woman you call Holly, who we see this process again. She goes through these same stages and passes away. But before that, she has an unexpected... Recovery is the wrong word, but let's talk about her last day. Okay, so Holly was a young woman whose kidneys were failing because the amount of cancer that she had in her pelvis was blocking the tubes between her kidneys and her bladder. And this is in the mid-1980s when we had less technological ways of, of relieving that obstruction of the kidneys. So she was dying of kidney failure caused by advanced cancer. And she was a young woman with teenage children living in a flat where her mum popped in and was doing the housework for her now because she was quite weary. And she was so unwell that she'd been bedbound now for a couple of weeks and had been very nauseated, which can be one of the symptoms of failing kidneys. So the Macmillan nurses had been visiting at home and they'd recommended a new drug for her nausea. And then I was on call for the hospice, my first weekend on call for the hospice. And Holly's GP phoned and said that something odd was happening. She, having not been out of bed for two weeks, was up, had been up all night. She was playing loud music. She was wandering around the flat trying to dance, holding onto the backs of chairs to keep her steady. And she was talking fast and talking a lot. And he just couldn't work out why she was behaving so oddly. And when I went along to see her, I realised that what was happening was a side effect of the drug that had completely settled her nausea, so it was the right drug to choose. A side effect of that drug is to make people feel very driven, as though they want to be moving. They're thinking very fast and they feel their body needs to move. It can make them twitchy, it can make them restless. It's quite a horrible feeling because there's an impossibility of relaxation. Technically, it's called akathisia, which means literally no chair, unable to sit down. So I knew there was an antidote to that akathisia symptom, which I'd have to go back to the hospice to get because I didn't want to stop the drug because it had stopped her nausea, which was really important. So we needed to do something with the restlessness. So I was clutching at straws, really, but I suggested that the family might put her in her wheelchair and take her down to the local shopping precinct. Uh, it was then I discovered that because she'd taken to her bed from being relatively able-bodied, there was no wheelchair. But they borrowed one from somebody downstairs whose huge and hefty sons carried her down the stairs because there was no lift. And they went off to the shopping centre and I went to get the necessary drug. And I came back actually with my boss because I'd phoned. It was my first weekend on call to say this unusual thing has happened and this is what I'm proposing to do about it. And quite rightly, he came along to check my diagnosis was correct before the drug was given. She had a fantastic time at the shopping centre. She met her sister down there. They bought presents for people. She had her nails done. And when she got back to her flat, she was very, very tired, but still not able to sit or lie or really find any peace from this drivenness. So my consultant agreed that the diagnosis was akathisia, that this antidote was the right drug to give. And we gave just a tiny little test dose just to see whether it would start to take the edge off her restlessness. And what was very interesting was watching then what happened next, that simply taking the edge off the drug-induced restlessness allowed her exhaustion to overtake her. And over the next 10, 15 minutes, 
She stopped moving around. She was able to sit down. She then found she wanted to lie down, but she couldn't manage the stairs. So the family brought a mattress downstairs. She snuggled down on the mattress and began to lose consciousness, waking every now and again. Her daughters snuggled in beside her on the mattress. And my boss narrated the dying to the family. He drew their attention to the changes. Can you see that she's looking more tired now? Can you see how peaceful she's looking? Have you noticed that her breathing is changing? So gradually, gradually, he helped them to realise that her life was ebbing away and that she was entirely and completely comfortable. And it was absolutely wonderful to watch somebody midwifing a death in that way. She needed no further medical interference. She just needed to be accompanied by the people who she loved. And all we did was accompany them to give them the reassurance that this was always going to be the outcome of this illness. And she'd had this final magnificent day simply because of this bizarre drive to action from the drug that was palliating her nausea. So again, I learned a huge amount in watching that take place. I raised that particular case because it does seem like a particularly magnificent way to go out. And there's been a number of books that I've, I've featured on on the radio show over the over the last few years of people, you know, doing a similar thing to yourself, which fundamentally is trying to demystify the idea of death. You know, exploring this idea that you know the modern world we are distance ourselves from death. And a lot of the times it comes down to this concept of the idea of the good death. Mm. In your work, I mean, I don't know how glib that is, the good death, but what would you describe as a good death? I get asked this a lot, and I really should have a pat answer by now, but I, I still don't. I'm still thinking about it. I think that every person probably has a different set of hopes and aspirations around what their dying will be like and about how much they've tied up their loose ends and what state they've left their relations in with the people who mean the most to them. And I think getting those things right is probably the essence of dying well. I think it's much more existential than the physical practicalities of dying. So if you know that death is approaching, you have an opportunity to finish business. And what's really interesting is that the business that people choose to finish is very, very similar from person to person and from society to society. So people want to express gratitude to the people who've been important to them. They want usually to seek reconciliation for differences. So they need to either offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness themselves. And they want to tell people how much they mean to them. They want to tell people that they love them. Now, if they have the courage to have those conversations because they realise that their life expectancy is becoming short, they almost certainly are also in a position where we can have the conversations about symptom management that will enable them to be physically comfortable while they're dying. But I think that good Dying follows from good living in that last part of life. Good preparation and being able to think ahead so that there are no huge regrets on the deathbed. And it may be that people have lived quite difficult lives, but they still are able to make sense of the very last part of their living. And that very much helps them to die in a more contented way. So I suspect the brief answer is a good death is a death that's accompanied by a sense of contentment. 
Just one more thing, Catherine. What does it mean for you that the book has been shortlisted for the Welcome Prize? Wow. Well, I I didn't know even that the book had been entered for the Welcome Prize because the um, entries are apparently by publisher. So the first thing I knew about it was when the long list was announced. I was absolutely astonished and delighted to make the long list. I was completely delighted and surprised to be on the short list. It's a magnificent collection of books. I've read the other five books. I'm absolutely incredulous to find myself in such erudite company. It's completely unexpected and I think that the announcement ceremony will just be lovely because it isn't a thing where if you don't win, you lose. We're all winners to be there and to be on that list. And for me, I'm passionate about this message and getting this message out to people so if the attention around the welcome prize gets a few more people to read the book i don't mind if they don't buy it they can go to the library i just want the message out there i think welcome is doing a great great service in helping to promote this book and the message and the ideas that are behind it so i've been talking to Catherine mannix we've been talking about her book with the end in mind dying death and wisdom in an age of denial which is out now from william collins and we've already mentioned it's been shortlisted for the 2018 welcome book prize Catherine, thank you so much for telling me about it thank you neil thanks this episode of little atoms was produced and presented by me neil denny and was first broadcast on resonance 104.4 fm little atoms is supported by 89 up and the podcast is hosted by acast find us on itunes and if you like the show please do leave us a review you can find old interviews new journalism and more on our website littleatoms.com thanks for listening hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.